Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And as we, um, we look at this, I want you to think about how uh, today could be a day of new beginnings for us. And, uh, and I hope that every time we come to church that we're growing in, in God a little bit, even if we don't sense it or feel it, that there's some kind of progress that's being made and that we're not, we're not going in reverse. It's not good. And tell your neighbor this because maybe they won't hear it from me. Tell your neighbor, it's not good to go in reverse. <laughs> in your Christian walk, you can add that later if you want, but maybe both, both are true. We're dropping into the middle of um, Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians, and we studied this uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, on a Wednesday night, we, or several Wednesday nights, we, we went through 2 Corinthians. Paul is making the case that, um, that he is God's apostle, and he's speaking to a church that he helped to, to uh, win people to Christ and, and found, and then there was a wave of of ministries that came through there, and they were preaching a different kind of gospel, a different flavor of gospel. And, and so it began to challenge not only uh, Paul's gospel, but his apostleship. And maybe we should say it the other way around. It challenged his apostleship, and not only that, but also the gospel. And so he's making a, a case in Second Corinthians for why they should trust the gospel that they first received and not be steered away from something else. I want you to know that there are a lot of different varieties out there today of religion. There are things that sound very close to Christian that are not Christian. And in fact, there are some things that are perhaps under the label of Christian that are even done by Christians that if we're, we're not careful could lead, us, could lead us astray. So we need to be thinking and we, we need to be discerning as Christians and know those areas. But as Paul is, is doing this, he, he makes this comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. One of the things that the people like to do is to push people back into uh, certain laws and requirements, of the old covenant. And what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that what we have now is far superior to that. Because they had a law, they had a written code, which, which was good. It was given by God and it served a function but do you know that writing of rules on paper does not give us the power to accomplish those rules? We need to have help in that regard, and that's what the New Covenant offers us. And so he's making this comparison, and let's just jump right in here, and we'll read the passage, and I'll, I'll come back to some explanation in just a moment. It says in verse 7, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. That's a lot of glories in there, right? Glory, glory. And if uh, what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, he's talking about now this more glorious um, covenant that we have in Christ. And if you were just to look at this, you would see the comparison that breaks down. 
sorry, just one moment here. This comparison that breaks down between what they previously had and what we now have in Christ. And we'll come back to our reading in just a moment. But uh, he says that this new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. Okay, uh, There's more glory that we have as a result of being in Christ. It was fading glory. Now we have this increasing glory. There's more freedom in this covenant that we have in Christ. And it's more enduring than what we had prior to the coming of Christ. And so he makes these comparisons here, and he talks about in these first verses, the ministry of the Spirit is being superior in glory to the ministry of death. So the thing that brought death was the written commandments, that once we saw the written commandments that were written against us, and we realized that we are lawbreakers, all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, the wages of sin is death. Okay, so we're under the punishment, we're under the curse, we're under the uh, judgment of death by the old law. But then a new covenant came along in which God gives us life. And so this is superior to that because we have the ministry of death, but when they, then we have the ministry of the Spirit. And he doesn't quite say it here, but it's a ministry that brings life. Okay, And then he makes the comparison, this paragraph we just read of ministry that brings righteousness is superior to that which brought condemnation. So you look at the written rules that are written against you and you go, I haven't kept that. I'm in trouble. My history uh, speaks out against me. It prophesies against me that I have not been a law keeper. I've not kept all of God's rules. How many are there? Let's all just admit that was us. All right, not everybody's doing that. Have we all come to the terms that we were sinners at one time? I'm not talking about now. Maybe in Christ now you recognize you're redeemed from that. But at one time we lived in sin and we were lawbreakers and we had no power to overcome that. In fact, we might have even found that we didn't feel we had the power to obey God's law. But Paul doesn't make doesn't uh, flesh it all out for us here. But what he is saying is that this, the ministry that we now have is the ministry of righteousness. How is that? Well, it's the Holy. It's essentially this: the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us, and God's law is able to be worked out through our lives as we obey the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not set. We we read earlier, and a lot of people will come to this conclusion: the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And I've heard people say, and this is wrong, that that's setting the Bible against the Holy Spirit. It's not. Okay, well, you're you're being so legalistic because you want to obey the Bible. That's not what that's talking about. That's talking specifically about the old covenant law. Okay, there are still rules in the Bible that we as Christians under the era of the spirit still have to follow. Say amen to that, please. Amen. There are still rules, but the the letter of the law cannot give you life. The letter of the law cannot help you obey the law. It can only tell you what we should do. It doesn't make us, it doesn't enable us to do those things. We have to find the power from somewhere else to do that. And the power comes in the Holy Spirit. And so this is one of the reasons why the new covenant is superior, because the Holy Spirit living within us gives us power to keep the law and to live righteously. I, I don't want to spend too much time here because our real focus is going to be somewhere else. But then it shows us that in this comparison that the ministry that endures is superior in glory to the ministry which fades away. So that's talking about durability. Um, I, I think is a, a good 
statement to live by is this, is that which lasts the longest is the most important. Do you agree? Okay, so the things that are fade away, they may be important for a moment, but in the long run, they're not as important as the things that last. Like how people feel about you in this moment is not as important about how God will feel about you for eternity. Those, we have to judge by those things. And so he's saying this new covenant is one that will endure. The old covenant is passing away. That's not to say that the law has passed away or uh, the prophets have passed away. This is to say that the old covenant has passed away. It's been superseded by the new. And so now he comes into this hope of a new covenant empowered by the Spirit. And so this is what Paul is preaching and uh, the, some of the hangers-on, they want to prescribe laws, but he's saying, no, we've got something new. And so then he's beginning to show us how this all works out. And he comes into verse 12 here, since we have such a hope. The hope is the new covenant. God's done something good. God has uh, elevated us forward or up beyond what we could ever get to on our own. And he's saying, therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. If you want a cross-reference for that, it's Exodus 34, 34. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, he's talking about the Old Testament, when Moses is read... A veil covers their hearts, those who haven't yet turned to Christ. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's telling us something that happens here in this relationship with God, that one thing that will happen is that a veil, when we turn to Christ, whatever that means, a veil is removed. Now, the difficulty of this is that we have two different images happening at the same time, and it can be confusing, but if we understand the bridge, then it all makes sense. One is that we see a veil over Moses' face. What does that have to do with the next thing, which is a veil over our hearts? The veil is an obstacle to seeing glory. Okay, on Moses' face. He came down the mountain. He got the afterglow of God's presence, and it made his face shine in a particular way that the people could see. So maybe you've seen this worked out in a new covenant kind of way when somebody's been with God and you can see the shine in their life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not a not a visible thing, but there's something about them that's glowing. Anybody is anybody relate to that? Okay, so it's a wonderful thing to be able to see that, and sometimes we don't see what's happening in our own lives, but uh, hopefully that's there. So there's glory that came upon Moses when he was in God's presence. Remember, he said, Lord, show me your glory, and the Lord said, I can't show you my face, but I will cover you, and I will pass by, and you'll get the after effects of my glory. And here's the cool thing is all it took for Moses' face to be transformed was the after effects. That's cool. Okay, so he comes down the mountain, and uh, he puts a veil over his face because, for one thing, the glory was fading, and another thing, it was kind of a bright, shining glory. And so he hid that from the children of Israel. 
Okay, so he put the, the veil over his face. So they couldn't see the glory. Okay, now the bridge is, Paul makes this connection, there's a veil over hearts. And that veil over hearts keeps those hearts from seeing the glory. Do you see the bridge? The veil is the obstacle to seeing the glory. And so he says when anyone turns to Christ, the veil is removed. This uh, word for, for coming to Christ is peculiar because uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, and this would be true in the Hebrew Old Testament and also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is this word for turn suggests turning away from other idols and turning to God with all of your heart in obedience to him. When anyone turns to Christ, that means when they turn to Christ, when you turn to Christ, you turn away from your other idols, you turn to him. It's a, it's a way of saying, I'm looking to you, I'm not looking to those other things. And looking, by the way, is also a, a packed word, because looking here doesn't mean just to set our eyes upon, it means to fix our attention to, it means to put our confidence in, when we look to, I'm looking to that to be the answer. You understand? So when you turn away from those things and turn to Christ, you turn away from your idols, the veil is removed. So now our hearts can see the glory that's always been there. Do you know that sometimes glory is there, but it's imperceptible to us because of our sin? Come on, amen. I don't, maybe you're sleepy as I am, but uh, to, I think that's exciting in one sense because there may be glory that's hidden all around us that we haven't yet seen because maybe we still have a barrier in our life. So let's ask, let's turn to God with all of our hearts and let him remove that perceiving obstacle, that cataract of the heart, right, that keeps us from seeing what God wants us to see, his glory, his glory. And so I think of uh, sometimes we just need to be awakened to it like um, Jacob is my favorite example. He's fleeing from Esau. He's not thinking about God particularly. He's thinking about how his life's in danger. He doesn't know what his future holds. And he sleeps. And he has a dream of the angels ascending and descending. Do you remember this? And then he awakes and he, he says this. The Lord was here. In the King James it says, and I knew it not. I didn't realize God's presence was here. And that's the way sometimes it is with us is that the glory is there. We don't perceive it for one reason or another. Perhaps we're not fixing our gaze upon Jesus. Maybe we've turned to him and said, I don't want to have anything to do with other idols, but we're not as fixed as we should be upon him. And that's uh, what I wanted to challenge us with. Let's read on. Uh, actually, we, we read through the rest of that. And I, w- I was thinking of this. I just finished this book by Daniel Borston called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. That's a mouthful. But what he's saying is that essentially in this book that we we build up events or headlines or some kind of big big deal, and then we go and worship it. Okay? I'll give you an example. This is an example that comes to my mind. Do you realize that what the Super Bowl is, the Super Bowl is coming up soon. I don't want to deflate your balloon, but the Super Bowl is coming up. Do you realize that all that is is a bunch of people running around making it important? It's a game. And a bunch of people have said this is important. And they put it on network television and they've put ads out there that says, you need to watch this because it's going to be important. Are you with me? And what we've done is we've created this pseudo event that at the end of the day means far less than what we're doing right now. Even though millions of people are going to be watching. 
This, right now, what's happening between you and God is far more important than that. And we're here. Thank God you're here, not watching football today. Boy, our hearts would be rebuked if that were the case, wouldn't it? So he wrote this book about the, a guide to pseudo-events in America, and he talks about projections. He makes this statement. I thought it was really interesting. He said he doesn't think America's chief uh, god is or religion is materialism. He thinks it's selfism. He thinks we worship self more than material. He, he thinks that communi- communists worship material things. It's a materialistic basis. We've all got to share equal amount of material, and it makes that the main focus of life. He thinks that in America that the chief God that we serve is self. And here's the interesting thing is that Daniel Borston wrote this book back in the 60s. And he says that most people aren't looking out a window, they're looking in a mirror. When you look out a window, you can gain information, you can learn about life. When you look in the mirror, you only see yourself. You get caught in this echo, this loop of looking at yourself. When when your intent gaze is set upon yourself, we are degraded by doing that. And this is a, he wrote this in a day before people took selfies and posted all of their life's happenings all over the internet for everybody else to, to not be interested in, <laughs> right? Like we're not really interested, or maybe you are, maybe you're a watcher. You like to see what everybody's doing. We're not living our lives. We want to be voyeurs and watch everybody else live theirs. What are they eating today for dinner? I hope what I'm eating is better than what they're eating. And we're caught in this weird loop of selfism. And that's really tragic. I was, it, it made me think of this uh, in our bathroom on, uh, in, in Hayesville, where I grew up, Hayesville, Kansas. Uh, we, had this, we had this mirror, um, which was like the medicine cabinet, and it opened. Okay? And it had, if I remember right, it had kind of this goldy fringe on it, like sometimes happened back in the 60s and 70s. And then on the opposite side, we had a wall full of tile mirrors. Okay, do you know what I, where I'm going with this? You can see both sides of yourself. It's wonderful. If you, and if you open the medicine cabinet just right, you can see the back. Just make sure your hair's not messy. Because I can tell you how many times I've gone out of the house. The front looked good in my estimation, and then I realized something's going on back there. Anyway. The really weird thing about that was, if you did the mirror just right, you could see this almost infinite progressions of yourself. Anybody see that before? And I'm afraid that if I go back there and stepped into that room, I would still see that same reflection going on and on into eternity. But it's one thing to look out a window, to be, look beyond yourself, and if you want a title for this message, it's look away. Look away and look to because we need to look away from ourselves. We get so caught up in our own selves. We're, we're so fascinated with our own image. We want to we build our bodies to look a certain way, and we want to be enamored with how they look. And we want to make sure that uh, everybody knows exactly what we look like. We want to put the best picture out there of all of that. And we're caught in this visual feedback loop of looking at ourselves. Borston's concern... Uh, about this in a you know in a day when there were no selfies or anything like that and uh this is the 
this is the age that we live in, the age where we make idols of ourselves. We put our physique ahead of our character. Mm. Do you know what the Bible says about that? Bodily exercise is profitable. Okay? So it's not saying don't exercise. But spiritual exercise is even more profitable. So we have to prioritize our character over our bodies. I don't know if you like that or not, but that's Christianity. We, we, we prioritize our character over our bodies. And we, in this age, we put, we put fun ahead of future. And we toss anything aside which limits or rebukes us. And we create the image of ourselves so that other people can view it and we ourselves can view it. And it becomes artificial. Humanity has never achieved greatness by looking at themselves. The greatest things in all of culture have come from focus on things beyond ourselves. The, the greatest art, the greatest uh, movements forward, the greatest uh, inventions, those were things that came from looking beyond ourselves. So this is a scripture call to look to Jesus. It compels us on. It affects change. It resets priorities. It changes perspectives. Borston said more and more people take trips not to see but to take pictures of themselves. He saw this ad in the magazine of a guy sitting in a new car on the edge of the Grand Canyon. He was looking into a viewfinder. And some of you don't know what a viewfinder is, I'm sure. But some older people know what a viewfinder is. And his daughter was taking a picture of him in the car. Nobody had their eyes on the beauty that God made. They were all looking at themselves. He says our problem is we look into a mirror instead of looking out a window and we only see ourselves. It's a lot like narcissists. You know the myth of narcissists that he was condemned to die when he saw his own face, and uh, he had um, he had uh, rebuffed the advances of Echo, who was after him, and so he got cursed in order to die from his own image. And so he found a reflection of himself at one point in a pool, and he got so enamored with himself that he didn't even turn away from his own image to eat or sustain himself, and he died there of starvation. That's a great picture of our culture, isn't it? We're so fascinated with ourselves that we're actually becoming emaciated and decaying by looking at ourselves. And what Paul is calling us to is something different altogether, to look not to ourselves, but to look away from ourselves and to look to him, to look to Christ. To It's interesting, the word that's used here, of contemplating, if you look with me at verse 18, we all with unveiled faces, we've turned to the Lord, okay? And now with unveiled faces, it says, uh, we contemplate, maybe yours, uh, your translation has behold as in a mirror, or it might be something like um, we all with unveiled faces reflect, maybe that. The problem here is that there's a word that's used specifically of mirror gazing, Right here, as you contemplate, what is it that we're contemplating? The Lord's glory. Okay? Then what happens is, it comes, uh, we are transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so here he's telling us as we look to the Lord, as we look away from ourselves, we look to the Lord that we're being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. 
And so we contemplate, we, we look away with unveiled face, we look away from ourselves, we look to him. And so this mirror gazing, the reason why that's so interesting is we're not gazing in the mirror at ourselves. We're actually gazing a mirror that reflects the image of Yahweh. Okay, the, the human Jesus, and I believe Jesus is both fully man and fully God, that as he comes, we see in him something that we never saw before, nobody ever saw before. We see God reflected to us in ways that our eyes could perceive. You understand what I mean by that? Not just hearing about God, not just thinking about God being an abstraction, but we get to see God in flesh. So I think this is one of the reasons why idolatry is such a, an insult to God is that he intended for one to be the image of him. First of all, uh, he made man in his image, but that image is marred through sin. Christ's coming is the image of the Father, the exact representation of his being, the Bible tells us. So we're seeing in Jesus something that has never been seen before. So as we, we behold his glory... We're seeing the Father's glory. We're seeing, indeed, the glory of the whole Godhead as we look to Jesus. So he's asking us to gaze there, to look to Jesus. What is glory? Glory is such a hard word to define. I've been, I've been a pastor for um, 20 years here, over 20 years, and five years before that. And I was a Bible college student before that. And as I've studied the Word of God, there's not one easy answer if you ask me, what's one word to exchange for glory? You can't do it. Because it means so much. One is splendor. Okay? One is brightness or brilliance. Another is weightiness. I think the Hebrew word tends to suggest a weightiness, a, a weight or a heaviness. And I think a really, great, um, a really great picture of what glory means here is moral beauty. Moral beauty. Think of this. When you behold Christ's moral beauty, something in us begins to change. We're being transformed. And I'd like you to notice that uh, this is in the present tense. As we contemplate, as we gaze as in a mirror, as we reflect the Lord's glory, it's not just us reflecting, but as we see that reflection of the Lord's glory, it's in the present tense, which means that as Christians, we don't get to look away from Jesus. I hope you'll hear in some of these messages that the constant call of the scriptures is to look away from ourselves. Are you with me? The constant call of scripture is to fix our gaze on him. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Right? We're to fix our eyes upon him. Remember in the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat was leading the army and he got into a pickle. And he said, cried out to the Lord, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're looking to you. That changes who we are when we gaze Him. When we worship other things, we become like what we worship. And what I think happens is if we take our eyes off God, that upward call of the image of God is cut off in arrested development, and we start to deteriorate by looking at ourselves. It's like our, us eating our own flesh. In time, we'll consume ourselves. And if you look to animals... And they have, remember Romans 1, they worship things that were made to look like the created, the creatures, the birds of the air, and the, the, uh, the, the animals that walk upon the land, and the fish of the sea. They worship those things. They made images to look like that. 
And the biblical principle is we become like what we worship. Okay? So think of this. If you're looking to, if you're worshiping God, then the upward call will be to grow in holiness and become more like him in those areas that are transferable. There are some things that are not transferable. Like if you're hoping to get omniscience, it's not going to happen. At least this side of heaven, and I still wonder, the jury's still out in my mind of whether we're going to be omniscient in heaven or not, or we're going to be in this perpetual state of awe and learning more and more about God through eternity. I don't know. I haven't settled that one. If you're hoping to be omnipresent, I can tell you, I get stuck in traffic all the time and wish I was somewhere else. It's not going to happen. Right? Omnipotent, I wish I could lift. I'm finding more and more that I can lift less and less. <laughs> and then you're sore afterwards. So those, those things happen because we're not, those are not transferable attributes. But holiness is transferable. You can become more and more holy and more and more like God. How do we do that? How do we, how do we find ourselves transformed? And here's the other thing that goes with that. As we continually look, as we continually contemplate, as we continually fix our gaze upon him, we are continually transformed with ever-increasing glory. The key to discipleship, number one, at the very first step, fix your eyes on Jesus. Before, fix this behavior. Before, do all of this 12-step things. One, fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, we got to turn to him first. Maybe we could back up. One A is turn to him. One B is fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, so we, we look to him, and we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So glory today, the, the glory that's reflected in you today, this moral beauty will be greater tomorrow if we'll keep our eyes on Jesus. Think of what uh, we sang today. I had to write it down. Darkness, uh, darkness cannot stand what? What do we sing? Your glory. Darkness cannot stand your glory. You start gazing into the glory of God, darkness cannot. I know it's not scripture. It's, just, it's a song we sing. But how many have found that true, that it's hard to be in God's presence with sin? Because we either want to run away from his presence or we want to repent of that sin and get it over with and enjoy his presence. Can I encourage you to do the second of those? We become like what we worship. Let me read a passage of Scripture, and I'm almost done. i to go home early today. This is from uh, Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them, listen, will be like them. Those who make idols will be like them, and so will all who put their trust in them. Do you get that? How, how are we like them? We become wooden statues if we worship wooden statues? No. We become... Uh, Unable to see, unable to speak, unable to hear from God. Our spiritual or perception is dulled by worshiping idols. Okay, so he says when we worship those gods, we become like them. You can see it. 
People worship animals. They become more animalistic in their behavior. Savage. Sexually focused. When we worship animals, we become more animalistic. When we worship humans, we get into this echo effect and we degrade. If we think humanity is the highest thing, what we'll do is we'll end up thinking that humans are just the highest of all animals. And so it's actually a degradation into animal worship. But if we worship God, it lifts us up. God calls us to live better than what our flesh wants to. And he helps us to do it. And we can do it if we'll let the Spirit come dwell within and we'll fix our gaze upon him. We'll look to him. We'll keep our eyes focused upon him. So this is... Uh, the call today to worship the Lord. I I could read to you from Isaiah. I'm just going to reference this. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 12 through 20, uh, talks about the the, uh, ironsmith going and cutting a piece of wood and chopping it into three pieces, and he, he builds a fire to warm himself, he cooks his food, and then he builds an idol. And then he bows down and worships it, and he pays homage to it. And he says... Uh, deliver me for you are my God. And he deludes himself by worshiping this idol and ultimately becomes like it. God's called us to something so much different. He's called us to turn away from those things, to turn away from ourself. I think uh, one of the interesting things in our world is that, that, and this has been going on for some time, so it's not new news, but Eastern religion has... Um, taken on a new popularity in our country. Are you, are you with me on that? Like we just relabel it and we call it something else, but uh, we've got to do our meditations and we've got to look within. We've got to spend all the time looking within, navel gazing. We're going to find out truth by looking into ourselves. This is Eastern religion. And here's the interesting thing is that if you look at the outworkings of Eastern religion, if you go to India and look at the outworkings of Eastern religion, you find that it's an oppressive system. It is. It puts people down on the bottom rung and calls them untouchables or Dalits. And they're under the curse of God. That's why, or the curse of the gods, because there's 330 million gods in Hinduism. But you look within, and that's the, the hope and the effect that we have, and so it's become more and more popular. And it's new to us, but it's not new. But our love for self, which ironically gets Eastern religion wrong, so what we've done is we've taken Eastern religion and we've mixed a little Americanism in with it. It says self is most important, and we've kept our individualism. Because if you live in the East, you realize you're not singular, you're part of the whole. Right? They call it monism, which means you're part of the whole. And the ultimate goal of life is to live your life in such a way that you're re- reincarnated to a higher state until finally you begin to disappear into the whole and you lose personality. God never calls us to lose personality. He calls us to be reformed in our personality and become more like him. He, we keep our individualism and yet we're brought into this unification with him so that there still is him and us. There still is I and thou, but there's us together. This is what heaven will be like, is that we'll get to be ourselves, but ourselves in God perfected. It's beautiful, and that's what happens when we gaze into the glory of Christ. But the other gets it wrong. Christianity is so different. We're drawn up into him. We lose ourselves in practice, but we retain our individuality. 
Jesus said, if anyone would gain their life, they, they have to lose it. And so somehow in giving it up, we, we gain our lives. And it's going to be true that the, the more you surrender to God, the more you will become the person you were made to be. The more you become that person, the more you will know yourself and be at peace with yourself, which I think are true American frustrations, that people don't know themselves and uh, they're not at peace with themselves. And I'm telling you, that's what happened to me when I found Christ. I I got to know who I really am. You know what I mean by that? That, And maybe that's true of all of you, that you, you found Christ. You really know who you are in him because we were made with a God-shaped hole in us, to use the old picture, and we're never ourselves until that hole is filled with God. We're never totally ourselves until that peace is fit into place. Once it is, you become the person that you're supposed to be as we're transformed into His likeness with glory after glory. Okay, and So, we with unveiled faces contemplate present tense verb that goes on after salvation until the day you go to be with Jesus and probably beyond that. But as we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. What is the spirit of the where the spirit of the Lord is? There is freedom. What does that mean? Because a lot of people have used that to me and I don't have to obey any rules. No, what that means is there's freedom from obstruction to really be what God's called you to be. In the past, you know, in the past we've had these obstructions. We've had the veil. We've had this, this, uh, this law that kind of blocks us in that even if, even if love would compel you to do something, there were certain restrictions that people put up that wouldn't allow them to do it. For, for example, if you're Jewish and you saw somebody in a house there that was in need, but they're Gentile. You can't go in that house and help them because a fence post law has been put up that says, touch not the unclean thing. And, that, and that's true, but the extension of it was made, I can't help that other person. But the law of love allows you to cross over those barriers and help that person because you love them. In fact, God compels us to do that. It's not as much about the restriction as it is about doing the right thing because we can step back in our restrictions and go, I'm doing all the right things and let everybody else die and go to hell and have all their problems and us and and ourselves just be okay with God. Uh, That's not Christian love. Christian love compels us to do the good thing and the best thing. You know what I mean? We still live holy lives, but it sometimes compels us to do things that challenges us, that it's not enough just say I'm obeying the restriction. No, it's compelling us forward to do the good thing. We follow him. I don't want to get away from our point today. Psalm uh, 16, verse 8 and 9 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. This, uh, of this uh, Tremper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says his intention is to stay loyal to God. My eyes are always on the Lord. And as a result, his life will maintain an even course. Do you see that? There's something that happens when you keep your gaze fixed. You go towards that point. Are you with me? Um, when I, I've told you this before, but when I was a youth pastor, youth pastors don't make a lot of money. I don't know if you know that, but 
Uh, so to supplement my income, we had a farmer in our church that asked me to go brush hog his fields. And that basically is chopping up all the grass that the cows won't eat and so that they can get to the grass that they will eat. And so uh, it's more important in plowing, but also in mowing, essentially, this field. He said the way that you do that is you keep your eyes on the horizon. And then you'll see where you need to go, and your tractor will go there. Okay, And, you know, <laughs> it works the same in mowing your lawn. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. But if you keep your eye on a particular point, you'll head towards that. Do you know that this is also true in your spirituality? If you keep your eye fixed on Jesus, you'll move towards him and not away from him. But what happens when we have our eyes on ourselves? Willy-nilly, I guess. We get caught in this echo. We, we don't become what we're supposed to be. We're in arrested development spiritually when our eyes are on ourselves. We have to look to him. We... Beholding the Lord's glory as in a mirror or contemplating the Lord's glory. Present tense. Always doing it. Every day. All the time. We're being transformed every day. All the time. Continually. Into his likeness. That's how it happens. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And, and the Hebrews writer writes it a little different. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He, he went down a course. He ran the course. He pioneered the way. He plowed through. We need to keep our eyes on him because he'll get us through the finish line. So we're trusting in him. I believe today that uh, all, of, all of what we have in Christ comes from having a relationship with him. Okay? And there's some other implications. We'll work out another time with that. But we get out of relationship with Christ. There's no salvation away from Christ. Salvation's in the person of Christ. You're trusting in him. Salvation is yours. You're not trusting him. If you're not looking at him, if you're looking to yourself, there's no salvation in that. It's, we can't say, I went to an altar back in 72. You need to ask, am I living in relationship with Jesus today? That's the defining matters, that we have allegiance to the Savior. I'm, when it comes time, I'm getting in Jesus' boat. Because I know where that's going. Are you with me? So we fix our eyes upon him. What does that mean? Well, Paul said it in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. We're in 3, but in just a few verses later, he says, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the focus. What does it mean to have our eyes on him? First, it means that he becomes the object of our trust. We're looking to you and not ourselves. We can't be good enough for heaven or a relationship with God on our own. We're looking to him. We're looking to him to get us through life, give life meaning. He is the focus of our trust. And then he's the focus of our priorities. We ask questions about what's most important. To have our eyes fixed on Jesus means he's the most important. Third, it means he's the heart of our affections. What do we love most? It ought to be him. And then fourth, he's the ideal of our worship. You may never attain to the ideal in this life, but when we worship the ideal, we move towards the ideal. You, are you with me? Like, if we're contemplating how can we live a more righteous life, it doesn't come by looking at how we're unrighteous. We need to do that in the beginning acknowledgments. That's confession of sin. That's, that's confession and saying, God, I recognize your judgments regarding me are true. I'm a sinner, and I need you. But you can't stay there. 
You can't continually look at yourself. You have to begin to look at Jesus. Once you do that, you start to become more and more like him. If this verse is true, and I think what it says is this, if we will stay focused looking at Jesus, we're going to become more and more like him with increasing moral beauty and glory in our lives. Amen? I think that's a word for us today. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention. I told you 15 minutes ago we were almost done. So there you know how long my conclusions are. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and take a moment here. Our worship team's going to lead us in a song. I wonder today if there's anyone here that has not turned away from self and turned to God or turned away from sin and turned to God. It's essentially the same thing. Focus on self is idolatry. Idolatry is sin. Sin separates from God. We have to turn away from those things and turn towards him. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of direction. So today I would ask, have you ever said to Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner? I'm turning from that and I'm turning to you. He died on the cross to cover the consequence of our sins. And he invites us to himself that we might walk in newness of life. He's promised to walk with us and lead us and guide us and help us to become righteous children. So if you haven't done that, today you can do that. Just say to the Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner in need. I'm turning to you, Lord. Put your confidence in him. Start looking to him. The practical outworkings of that, I, we can help you with here at Maranatha. But that's a start to be, begin to say, I'm, I'm looking to you. Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm not trusting in myself. I've, I've failed. I've messed up. I've gotten it wrong. I'm looking to you. I don't know how to get to heaven. You do. I'm looking to you. I don't know how to live the good life. You do. I'm looking to you. Look to him today. Amen. We need to look to Jesus. I know, um, you know, I don't like to ever leave the house without glancing in the mirror. Anybody else with me? Okay, you don't want to raise your hand because it seems vain, right? But we don't want to do that. We want to make sure things are in place and have something on our face or something in our teeth or our hair is messy or whatever. Um, we look in the mirror. We want to make sure that uh, we look a certain way. But I, I think just that as that is kind of a habit, that we have, I think we ought to have that same habit when it comes to looking to Jesus. We don't want to go a day without gazing into who he is. And we can do that practically by reading his word and spending time with him in prayer. But let's let Jesus be the focal point of our lives, and it will make all the difference in the world. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for um, this word to us, and we pray that you would let the, because of the Spirit, to to drill down and to cause the, the truth of this to penetrate our hearts and to become part of who we are, we pray. Help us, Lord, out of habit to always be thinking about what would please you and how uh, you would live and, and uh, to gaze on your beauty and to be changed by it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.